don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Got a guest on Second Captain Saturday today who's won just about every international honour that it's possible to win. I've seen her described as one of a very select number of Irish cultural figures who are at the top of the world rankings, and that is all true. But will the world-renowned architect Yvonne Farrell finish today on top of the Second Captain's greatest non-sports person sports person rankings? That is the much bigger question. You're welcome to the show. Hi, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? It's going all right. Yvonne Farrell set up Grafton Architects in 1978 along with her friend Shelley McNamara, and they've gone on to design incredible buildings all over the globe they were awarded world building of the year in 2008 for their work on a university in milan they designed another college world campus. building of that's the wor- year murph that's wait there's a bit more to go here if you if you stop at every one of these it's going to be a long shot oh, okay sorry they designed sorry. another college campus in lima and peru that helped them win the silver lion award at the prestigious venice biennale exhibition in 2012 a few years later they actually curated that exhibition themselves which is a massive honor there's the royal gold medal which is the uk's highest honor for architecture and have i mentioned last year's Pritzker Prize which is basically the Nobel Prize of the architecture world yeah yeah they just took that one home as well no big deal Murph it's just what they do <laughs> wow. I'm finished now I'm, I'm only finished because I'll be all day going through all the awards they've won if I continue to read these accolades out rather mm. than actually interview it sounds pretty impressive <laughs> yeah it sounds <laughs> pretty impressive on about this. Uh, it's enough to say she's right up there among the best in the world at what she does and we're very excited to get the chance to chat through Yvonne today about her philosophy about the role that architecture can play in helping with Ireland's housing crisis and about her current work on the new ESB headquarters on Fitzwilliam Street in Dublin, Murph. That's one of her, her big projects. I'm sure you've, well, we've worked around there. Yeah. So you certainly, you've, we've seen that go up. Yeah, so these are the old uh, Georgian buildings that were demolished in the 1960s to make way for the old ESB uh, building. Uh, described by the Irish Times, perhaps uncharitably, as one of the worst acts of vandalism in the history of the state, <laughs> which is not the sort of thing you want attached to your building. There, that's not, sort of, not the sort of thing you put up on a blue plaque. Uh, but the buildings that replaced those ones have now been knocked and Yvonne is in charge of the rebuild of the ESB headquarters. If you walk by there, you'll see it all coming together. Yeah. Uh, so it's a pretty massive project in a pretty prestigious uh, part of part of Dublin. But forget all that for now anyway. We really, what we really want to know is does she have a shock love for any 90s hurling figures like Darren Grief has affection for Fingers O'Connell or Jerlock Nan last week? Also, will you keep your bloody head, Murph, for one week only at least and not embarrass yourself like you did last time <laughs> with the 84 <laughs> points for Darren? You got carried away. Everybody was embarrassed for you. It's fine. It's done. Just, know. you know, a bit of composure know, today wouldn't go amiss. Really, um, I, I, all I can do is apologise again. <laughs> <laughs> Please bring us the rest of your by now totally discredited and farcical second captain's non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. Could have been a contender. It could have been somebody. Malcolm Gladwell is still on top of the pile with 88 points. And lest we forget, no one in the history of this show has ever scored higher than 88 points. So the smart money is on him to hold that lead all the way through to the end of the series. Renowned philosopher and pugilist Bonnie Greer is currently rooted to the bottom of the division on 71 points. Mid-table respectability is Dave Balf from For Those I Love's middle name with 80 points. Can architect Yvonne Farrell construct an argument to score 84 or better and break the top three? We're about to find out, Owen. Nice. Text us on 51551. Tweet at secondcaptains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Let's get some echo in the bunny I want it now I want it now 
Nothing Lasts Forever by Echo and the Bunny Men on Second Captain Saturday. Today's guest is an Irish woman at the very top of her game. Last year, she was awarded the Pritzker Prize, which can loosely be described as the Nobel Prize of the architecture world. And when she was given the honour of jointly curating the most prestigious international exhibition in her field, the Venice Biennale in 2018, she based her theme, Free Space, on lessons she learned as a young girl swimming in a public pool in Tullamore. Yvonne Farrell, it's brilliant to have you on the show. <laughs> I think it was a bit more complex than that. And it was with Shelley McNamara, my, my business partner. Yeah, but I do love that. Uh, well, put it this way, you've won the highest honours in architecture I've just mentioned one or two, you know, you've designed university campuses in Lima, a world building of the year winner in Milan. But I do want to start right back in that pool built in 1938, I think, in Tullamore. You've got happy memories of the place. Well, it was built a little bit a while before I was born. Thank you very much, uh, Owen. Um, 
what 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 I find amazing about you know it was one of the first uh, outdoor swimming pools built in the country by a local authority, and I think that local authorities sometimes get the you know the 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 kind of hard end of the stick, but but they're the kind of people who make the civic space, and in a small country town to get a a, a wonderful uh, natural uh, pool with uh, fresh water. Okay, it wasn't heated; uh, it came from a local river, but it was like a, a a piazza. You know, all the children in the town and the adults had the opportunity to to go there and to learn to swim. So not only was it the kind of pleasure of having summer days and cycling out there and uh, meeting friends and all that kind of thing. So sport was was pleasure, and it was also socializing and also being kind of independent. So so it was yeah it was it was great and also you had to cycle there it was out in Camp Captain Kerr on the outskirts of the town so you cycled and you uh you met people. Yeah and you you mentioned a couple of times there the the social aspect of it and the sociability of a building like that. I'm just kind of curious to know what lessons did you take from the Tullamore Municipal Pool into your professional life as an architect? Okay it's a v- interesting question. Uh, what lessons? I think what happens is that uh, all architects, you know, take their experiences and kind of embed them deep in their unconscious, and then it it, it might come out in various places. I I think that the uh, um, cycling from the town, the ability to cycle, like in urban planning, that one of the problems with say uh, the the way many cities are planned is that you know children don't have the pleasure of being able to walk to a place or cycle to a place, so they're kind of uh, taken and given a lift and dropped off and that it gives you a sense of dimension like it's interesting to to talk to you and to think about this this pool you know it was about uh, I had to look up to see how far it was and it was about six kilometers so you cycled six kilometers out you trained and you were taught and you had fun and you messed and you met people and then you cycled back in and it was fantastic when you were cycling back in there was a bakery where uh, in one of the laneways when you went through the squares of, of Tullamore and you could get fresh buns for incredibly cheap because the guys, you'd be coming back from swimming and there's nothing nicer than the smell of uh, of freshly baked, you know, uh, buns to uh, when you're hungry mm-hmm. as you're cycling home. So I suppose in answer to your question, I think that in the town as a, as a as a as a little person you're you're learning dimension you're learning that the smell of a bakery and the pleasure of falling into you know river water and coming through the squares of Tullamore and then cycling up to your to your home under cherry blossoms that it's quite a physical uh, uh, reality you know and that you learn dimensions and this was you know the fact that it was on the other side of the town meant I had to leave where we lived cycle over the canal bridge uh, which was a wonderful piece of infrastructure that linked Tullamore to Dublin and to the Shannon. And then you went through the squares of the town and then you went past, actually it turned out to be Pugin, who was a very important British architect. He'd built this little uh, chapel, uh, uh, which you passed a little church on the way out, a little, on a little hill, and then you cycled that. So you, it was a kind of a, a geography lesson and a spatial lesson that you, you know, you, you weren't, you know, it wasn't conscious of that when you're kind of ten years of age, but but it certainly embeds itself in the in in the reality of your experience, and then it comes out by. I mean, we do uh, in 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 our office in Grafenachtlich, we do a lot of schools and universities, and and one of the things that's really important is to to think about the dimension. You know, what's something we often talk about 
you know, uh, uh, Goldilocks, you know, the, the kind of Goldilocks thing, some, when something's either too big or too small or just right. So mm. the, the learning the just right is also a very human uh, uh, thing to learn. Beautiful memories. You're, you're credited with coming along and changing perceptions, I think, along with a lot of contemporaries, Shelley McNamara, who you mentioned there, your late husband, Michael DeCourcy, and other people who seem to come along around about the same time. Is that right? Were you and are you still passionate about changing perceptions of architecture, how we see things? Since 2008, uh, you know, 50 percent of the world's population live in cities. As we go forward, that moves up to 75% or some enormous proportion of people will live in built space. So therefore, architecture will be the environment in which people will be. So we will be building the, the enclosures uh, and the worlds of the future. So it's an incredibly uh, important discipline. And that's what it's really interesting, your challenge, your program, because you, mm. you uh, one of the things that I said some time ago and thought about that, that it would be amazing in the same way as sport is given so much time and the air and it's wonderful. Everybody, I mean, it's marvelous to see your human achievement in terms of sport, but also that that architecture impinges on people like a hundred percent. And yet it's kind of seen as, you know, as kind of a design that's that's extra. And, and, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had, you know, if we could buy the new something or other, but architecture is much, much more than that. It's really the enclosure it's like outer skin it's the skin of humanity and it's a cultural component so it's not just it's not just building and it's not just keeping the rain out it's a whole language when one of the phrases that I've used a few times is that uh, architecture is a silent language that speaks you know a building says things to you you know you some buildings are very uh, in- inclusive and and attractive and take you in and bring you and lead you through in a very gentle, silent way. And then other buildings are terrible. You know, and the interesting thing about architecture is that it's like a spectrum that because architecture spans from building to art, you know, in a big sliding scale, sometimes it's just building and sometimes it's too much art. So it has to get the right balance a bit Goldilocksy again, <laughs> the right balance between doing what it should be doing over time and also being sustainable and all that kind of thing now, but also has some sort of uh, gift that it gives people. Why do you think that there are those misconceptions or that we don't fully grasp the importance of architecture in the world around us, do you think? I think there are lots of reasons. Uh, one, I think, is that architects, we speak to ourselves and we speak in a kind of a language that's, you know, could be seen as rarefied. And, and that's a problem in our profession. I think that's one. The other is that it's kind of glorified, you know, the kind of the extremes of beauty, the kind of pyramid or whatever. But I love the work, say, of the architect who made the um, Sydney Opera House. What's amazing about him, Jorn Utzon, is that he can make a building that represents a nation, but he can also make really very beautiful ordinary houses. And, mm. you know, it isn't architecture is not a component for the rich. Architecture is is like a civil right, you know, that you that there should be good housing and good streets and safe streets and easy access. And uh, people should demand more of architects, just demand more of civil society, because architecture is a cultural component. And uh, when we talk about, say, just in Tullamore, you know, the, the public streets and the squares and the local authority are changing the surfaces and putting beautiful granite on it. And 
uh, trees and I live in a lovely square here and the, the grass and the trees and the children something it's very interesting it's very dear to my heart I was walking back from a walk the other night and there were five kind of 10 or 12 year old girls up on branches in the trees chatting and I thought that is brilliant that is what this little group of houses that has a green space with mature trees in which uh, children can have their imagination. So the architecture of the houses allows the space to be kind of slightly overlooked so it's safe and the trees are allowed to grow. And to me, tree, a chestnut tree is as much architecture as, uh, um, you know, a, a major uh, building because it's a space that's seasonally beautiful and that you can, it has a tactility. So I think architecture, architecture is everything really, you know, uh, the canals have become what were, you know, uh, transport systems have now become linear parks. Um, the beach, when the tide goes out here in, in, uh, in Sandy Mount, the beach, the water goes out. So you get a whole plaza of sand, which is acres and acres of free space. So architecture is the beauty of the world. Yeah, I'd like to hear you placing architecture so squarely at the centre of kind of all of our lived experiences. And, you know, obviously there's a housing crisis going on in the country at the moment. And to hear you talk so passionately about architecture, it's obviously a massive part of the solution. And, you know, I've read Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times say that we've two of the most celebrated architects in the world in you and Shelley McNamara. But that maybe we're not properly utilising your expertise in putting architecture at the centre of any solution to a housing crisis. Would you agree with, with Fintan and what he says? I think that uh, Shelley and I are part of, there are fantastic architects here in this country. You know, we're part of a, a whole culture of, of living architects who are really, really uh, experienced and brilliant at what they do. And they don't have a chance, really, uh, many opportunities. You know, they should be given small little places, big places to do. but. When we were doing, going back to the Biennale, when we were choosing samples of fantastic things to build or to as samples and proven samples around the world, there was a terrific project in, in um, Helsinki, which we asked the architects to represent and to tell us more about. And we, um, it was interesting because Leo Varadkar was visiting the Biennale at the time. We brought him specifically to look at these kind of uh, samples because what this architect had done was that she had... Uh, built this project which uh, increased the floor to ceiling height to five meters high in this small development of apartments and what that allowed uh, within that section just raising it up a little bit was that you could have single space or you could have two levels in there and you could have you know, three bedrooms or a studio or you could modify it over time and there are lots of really brilliant ideas that architects have and have built and have proven which um, could really enrich sustainability over time. And I think the issues of housing, when you, you know, when you read, you know, the various writers, Mac Williams and all the various people who write and Fim uh, write about how the situation, I mean, it is terrible that there isn't enough housing uh, within this country. The situation is complex because of land and value and construction and waiting for sites to get bigger and bigger and then it gets bigger and bigger builders. Orla Hergeti is a very interesting spokesperson in terms of one of the ways of dealing with 
the housing crisis is also to make the problem a smaller scale that you that you have smaller interventions and also that eco program which is very interesting with Duncan Stewart you know he keeps asking the question about uh, we have a huge amount of actual built space that's underused right in our towns in our cities something like 60% uh, in, in Limerick and in Cork, like, that's true of every uh, town in, in the country. But the challenge is then how do you transform existing buildings and modify them that satisfies the conservation, the fire and uh, access for all. So they, you see the issues that you're dealing with are complex, but the fantastic thing about wanting something is that you can focus. If we really wanted to use that 60% of existing built space it's also in terms of sustainability the materials are all there uh, the windows are there the spaces are there we need a mechanism to use what we have and also i think i would agree with orla hegarty it's not always a big solution to a big problem a solution sometimes can be a series of many small things together so that the smaller builder, the smaller site, the ingenuity of little tiny sites, left, right and centre, and the banks, that the banks should be, I mean, we saved the banks since 2008, and the banks should hand over huge amounts of money to people to build, that the small builders are able to build, and the medium-sized builders, not always the enormous ones, because the enormous construction sites mean enormous amount of time and investment and delays when huge things are stopped it's huge delays so i think that in terms of the housing that it is a complex problem but it can be solved by uh, incrementally dealing with money and land and building up from a small scale how uh, have, have you tried to lend your expertise uh... You know, Murph referenced it earlier on that, you know, say, for example, the, the you did a housing project years back on North King Street in Dublin. As far as I know, the only major housing project you guys have done in Dublin. Have you have you tried to do more and have hit roadblocks or how does that all work? Well, what tends to happen is that the, the housing uh, tends to be kind of done by kind of housing people. And uh, we, uh, as I said, there are really important uh, and uh, intelligent and hardworking and inventive architects right around the country uh, that could be more involved in housing and it's uh, they yeah we'd like to be doing more we'd love to be doing housing we'd love to be doing it how do you make that happen is it can you do can you be more proactive yourself in making that known um well it's uh maybe we come across as being a uh, as uh, thinking too much and trying to invent and going back to first principles, we're not getting the projects, uh, I suppose, in answer to your question. <laughs> so, uh, we probably drive people bonkers or that. Um, <laughs> but it would be amazing to do like that project in Helsinki, to do a number of those around. We are doing other housing where there are other housing uh, projects that we're doing. It's it's not that's not true to say that we've um, they've only done the one up in uh, in North King Street, there are other ones that we are involved in, but it would be amazing if more architects were involved in housing. Do you have then a, if this isn't too broad a question, in terms of building more and better houses, if you take Dublin, for example, with apologies to the rest of the country, would you have a vision of how Dublin could and should look if things were done right? 
I think mix would be uh, amazing to mix uh, uh, retail and uh, offices and, and apartments and housing. You know, that cities, that cities are about people. Yes, they're about um, building, but they're also about people. I remember uh, having a conversation with somebody in Paris and he was telling me when their first child was born, they lived in the center of Paris in these beautiful six or seven or eight story streets. And he was saying he went to the to the butchers to get some f food and the butcher asked him what weight his daughter was. And then he went to the hairdressers and the hairdresser asked what color her hair was. And you, you realize that in the the beauty of Paris is really the ability to be able to walk down from where you are and get these uh, kind of life supporting food and, and culture. So the city, what I love about Dublin under normal times, I can walk from where I live right through I walk through the to the gardens of Trinity through the gate through the front gate and out onto I mean this is a very beautiful place and I'm very privileged I know that to be able to walk like I walked into the city uh, the other day very early in the morning and what's really sad is that because of COVID it's it's like as if it's lonely the city is lonely for people and I think that the section is really important that we should have that the section should be that you maybe have whatever on the ground level that you might have some offices and that all the rooftops or the upper levels are these incredible courtyards with people living there and uh, having a life and enriching so it isn't about nine to five city it's it's a every place is its people as well as the buildings so it's the combination of you know uh, uh, a shop a conversation a railing um, I mean, we've just finished 120 metres with uh, uh, Omani Pike Architects and, uh, on, on Fitzwilliam Street. And we, we were very conscious when we did that building, which is just really opening now, uh, uh, the scaffolding's coming down, that, that we were making 120 metres on the longest Georgian Street in the world, between from Hollis Street up to Leeson Street, uh, that, that Fitzwilliam Street. And what we wanted to do is to make something that was both part of the tradition of the 18th century Dublin, but also part of the 21st century. It's a lot of pressure to get things right. And I, I think of that that rebuild of the ESB building and all along that street you're talking about. <laughs> My understanding of this, Yvonne, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is effectively there was this beautiful old these beautiful old Georgian buildings there as there are around that part of town um, they were demolished they were pulled down in the 60s to make way for a new modernist at the time building there for the headquarters for ESB and it was decided at some point that this was actually a bit of a disaster so we're going to have to rip that building down and then rebuild it but make it look like the original Georgian buildings and that's effectively your task is that right? There were Georgian buildings 16 of them uh, they were knocked down at the time uh, in the 60s when it's the same. It's interesting. I often think that the relationship between dentistry and architecture is quite interesting. You know, th there was a time when, you, you know, any time your teeth were given any trouble, they'd whip them all out and you had kind of, you know, put in dentures. And then the dentist realized that the structure of your jaw and all that was, you know, not benefiting <laughs> from that choice. And that's kind of parallel to what happens also with with building, that people realizing that, there's context and, and if you obliterate the context, you can make new, but you might lose something. So in the particular case, when those 16 were knocked down, as many buildings around the country were being knocked down left, right and centre, then uh, it was a modernist building, as you say. Uh, and it was actually 
quite a good building of its time actually put into that place, a very thoughtful building with vertical kind of uh, repeated elements. But um, one of the things that was a, a pity about it, with all its strengths, was that it had one door. And that one of the wonderful things about Georgian architecture is the rhythm of the doors, that they, they happen in a kind of a, like in a, in a piece of, of Bach, there's a kind of a, a, a repeated melody that kind of, as you walk along a Georgian street, they, you pass the windows and the railings and then the door and the steps and you pass the windows and the railings and the door. So there's a kind of a, it's, it's like a repeated um, melody. And so when we were doing the competition, mm. going back to the thing even of free space, which was that, that in fact the street's the thing, the surface is the, the thing, the brick and the rhythm of the doors. So what we did was, it wasn't quite like what you say, although that's <laughs> probably a, a, a shorthand to it. Don't worry about hurting my feelings, Yvonne, if I'm completely off beam, just just hit me with it. <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not, I'm, worried about, I'm worried about your feelings. Yeah. Um, uh, but we wanted to have something that had a, had a melody or a memory or uh, appreciation of the certain things that that was characteristic of Georgian architecture, not pastiche. And I disagree with what uh, Michael McDowell had written some time ago in the Irish Times, that pastiche is not about leaving a kind of a carcass and then stuffing in things behind. It's about trying to find the essence of something and trying to, to make it so that the appreciation of craft in the 21st century can still have some sort of echo but not, but not miming. It's not mime. And I think what's interesting about the doors we've made and the windows, and we've, we've tried to, to craft. I mean, that's what the ESB project is about. It's trying to say that the street is really important, the surface of the street, the brickiness of the street, and the rhythm of entrances. One thing I've, I'm interested to pick up on uh, with you is we actually worked very, you, we used to work very close to that ESB building and you know it's kind of like that old line that uh mary whitehouse line about pornography you know i don't know what it is but i i know it when i see it and i, I kind of felt like that that esb building was it was ugly and that was that was a worse crime than knocking down all those georgian houses and I, I'm, I'm interested here that that you actually quite liked the old building in ways it it kind of leads me on to my next question which is cities are supposed to change and evolve and you know what's built now necessarily will be what's will be different to what's being built in 40 years time. And how does one decide when it's the right thing to do to knock something down and, and go again, or what's worth preserving and what's not worth preserving and just the dangers of kind of walking that tightrope? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. In the past, we have knocked things down as a profession too easily. Uh, development, you know, that word in inverted commas is kind of a, you know, the bulldozer. And sometimes we just need to think a little bit more to hold on to buildings. But I do think as we move in the future, sustainability uh, issues about materials and how wasteful it is to knock down too often. So it's your question is a it's it's a matter of judgment and judgment changes over time. Things that back in the uh, 50s and 60s would have a bulldozer in the morning are probably a little bit safer now, but. But it also was like a Paddy Shaffrey and, and the books on, you know, Irish towns. And, you know, they were banging their head off a wall, excuse the expression, at the time, because everybody kind of thought Irish towns. So why don't we just do nice 
buildings out in out in suburbs and the towns are a waste of time. They're old fashioned. You know, th- there's a fashion in thinking. And what's interesting about the architectural profession is that we we're supposed to be thinking about the, the building stock and, and to being ahead of the, the posse in terms of potential. But it also takes a huge amount of uh, um, buy in from the public and changing policy. And I was talking recently to somebody about policy and one of the things we might think about, which is free as well, is to put an ingredient of kindness every day into a policy. And the kindness might be about the, the, the saving a building or uh, a threshold or not throwing things out. Or um, I, I agree with you. I, the, the decision to knock a building is not an easy one um, and has to be carefully done. And there was a time when a lot was knocked down. Uh, and now I think people will think a little bit more carefully about obliterating materials because there's so much embodied um, energy in buildings Uh, but new buildings are good as well so (laughs) sometimes old buildings are just you know they've done their job and we can reuse the materials and uh, celebrate modernity in a positive way. All right, Yvonne, I'm loving this chat so far and there's loads more to come, including a forensic ranking of your sporting achievements. We're going to be back with more from the world-renowned architect Yvonne Farrell on Second Captain Saturday right after this. Second Captain, First Captain, whatever. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. We've been entertained and enlightened by one of the world's top architects today, Yvonne Farrell. Yvonne, we've talked about your early days swimming in that pool in Tullamore, and we're going to come back to your own experience with sport in a minute, but there is a deeply tragic part of your story connected to sport. Your husband, Michael, who we mentioned earlier, he died playing a game of football, of all things, when he was just 29 back in the 80s, in 1984. My question really is, you talked about the joy of sport and the movement and the expression and all those wonderful things. Did that tragic experience change the way you viewed sport? Um, well, it's a very personal question. Uh, I'll take it. Um, it was, he was a brilliant architect and a brilliant person and a terrific guy. And he, uh, what's amazing is that my son, Matthew, is a terrific sports person and he loves soccer and he's a great cyclist. And he plays soccer maybe two or three times a week. And you can't live, you can't blame sport for a tragedy. Mm. And it was, it was a wonderful summer. It was 1984 and it was really beautiful summer, but it meant the ground was like, uh, was like concrete. And poor Mike slipped and fell back and hit his head. And that, that, that was the consequence. The consequence was he died. But I think that... It, you can't, it wasn't sport that, that uh, caused the tragedy. It was circumstance. And I think that what's amazing about sport and watching Matthew, he's always my son, Matthew de Corsi, who's a who really is, a, he loves soccer and he loves reading about it and he loves sport and he's very sporty. And I think that you, you couldn't, it would be ridiculous to say that, you know, that, it, that, uh, that you ban, uh, it would be a bit like, um, uh, was that the story of kind of uh, uh, Buddha? Was it that he was kind of uh, um, kept and, and wasn't shown or was it St. Francis? So there was some, you know, that you, you, you can't be cosseted uh, against the, the circumstance of the world. And I think that, it, no, I, I think that that was uh, a tragedy of extreme proportions. But 
that was that was not soccer's problem uh, and wasn't sport problem. And Mike was he was a terrific. He was, you know, he was a great. Uh, uh, he he was a very athletic person and not only loved soccer but was kind of reviewed for uh, you know for trials for uh, uh, for Leinster and that kind of thing. So um, uh, the the tragedy was was a tr- human tragedy, but not about sport. Is still and I think that sport is. Um, a wonderful aspect of life because it's about the thing of uh, how people come together and how a, a soccer team is an organism that you know works together and these number of people are thinking as one that's an incredible phenomenon so no it didn't it hasn't made me less uh, or value sport less you 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 realize yeah. how fragile the human condition is more than anything else yeah i think it was more just that the experience could have made you worry about him or, or more protective of him when he went out in the sporting fields. But obviously you were able to give him that freedom and he flourished with it. Oh, I'd love to, you know, put him under lock and key and uh, say, you know, you're not, you're not to play tiddlywinks and whatever. But I mean, no, nobody can. You don't own another person. You know, there's a lovely line from Khalil Gibran that as a parent, it's like as if you, if, uh, if you are the bow and they are the arrow. So you kind of, no, you can't, you can't, you can't, people are not, um, you're not owned by your parents and yeah, it's fantastic to see them enjoy space and, and uh, uh, the camaraderie as well and uh, the discipline. What's interesting, just in terms of tennis, Matthew used to play, and I used to play a lot of tennis, that, that the singles in tennis is, is about you and your, your, uh, your, your colleague playing across the net and then doubles is another kind of thing because you're also trying to be part of a half and they're, they're very interesting mm. social skills to do with them um, I, I think sport not only is it fun and all those kind of things it also develops in people uh, a sense of other and the sense of self so it's um i think sport is yeah the only worry i have about that when you take sport you've got you know people saying oh i don't want to do it too tired i don't want to do it and you look like the wreck of the Hesperus when you come in off a hockey field. Or <laughs> I don't get my hair ruined. Or but in fact, it's 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 a very, especially in education and and girls to encourage girls to to really uh, enjoy sport. You know, the kind of, you know, you have to be careful that this isn't kind of a the tomboy thing and you're not going to get your nails damaged or whatever, that that there's there's a freedom in the pleasure of sport that that are see sport implies a standard i think so you know in your wonderful program which i've enjoyed listening to over the over the many weeks oh, thank um, you. i think that uh, you know sport we have to be careful that you don't exclude because you have to be you know terrific at sport i think it's great when when people are absolutely terrible at sport as well <laughs> And that it isn't about competitive. It's, I think that the competitive nature of of sport could also be its undermining. There's something in sport which needs to be grown, which is more about the pleasure of lepping around in space like a dancer, uh, and being really bad at what you do. It'd be great to have awards for really being terrible at sport. 
<laughs> I love that idea. Uh, that's yeah. where I'll probably get today now with your words you're marking. <laughs> well, I've actually got my seat here. I'm not going to lie to you. Murphy's, <laughs> Murphy's tougher than any judge on the, the Pritzker panel, anyway. I'll tell you that for nothing. I said, yeah, the only trophy I have in sport was that with Anne Tyndall and myself, we won back in 1995 at the Frostbite which, uh, as a doubles down in tennis. And I took it out to have a look at it because I knew I was talking to you. And when I looked at it, the the the, the it's Lansdowne Tennis Club and Lansdowne is spelt incorrectly and I've had it for years I've never looked <laughs> <laughs> tell tell us more about this victory uh, I mean uh, you carried your partner on your Anne Tyndall on your back didn't you <laughs> well the, the truth is that Anne is a brilliant tennis player and I was the the uh, let's say she was the stronger of the two and she's a brilliant tennis player and uh, but it was really a good game but it was 1995 and i was telling matthew that you know as a, a, that i'd be speaking to you and that i'd mentioned we, we both groaned at the uh, that if that was the height of my uh, <laughs> trophies for sport <laughs> i was really uh, uh, clutching at straws but it was really i mean the the club and um, it was very interesting actually when you raise the the thing of of a uh, uh, after Mike dying and and then having to to kind of Matthew was only nine months old and and then the, through friends and and going back to play the sport and being encouraged by the club and meeting people that that you realize that that sport is also the, the a bit like cities it is about people uh, taking you under their wing to be included in a in some in some way a kind of mini city you know so that that's what I really value about sport, that it's, it includes you into, into little communities of uh, specialized people who either love to run up mountains or cycle from here to, to Galway. Or, so they're, they're little villages of like-minded people who take you under their wing. So the, the frostbite with Anne Tindall and myself, yes, it was the pinnacle of my uh, tennis <laughs> career, but it also was... Uh, it's a kind of a memory of of the support from from strangers, really. It's lovely. Now it's really well put, and I think that's got to, that that's got to go down as the sporting highlight. So we will now rank this sporting life, Murph. Oh, could no. you please? Oh, we have a <laughs> we have a worried contender on the other end of the line there, Murph. Please rank this sporting life. Just put her out of her misery. Rank this sporting life of Yvonne Farrell. Please. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, Yvonne, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us this afternoon. And if we could leave on this upbeat message, we would. I know that would make you more comfortable. But unfortunately, I must now evaluate your career <laughs> sporting highlight. Nominate a sports person that I feel most closely resembles you and then give you a score out of 100. Because as we've learned, sport is all about vicious, ruthless competition. <laughs> it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. So 88 is the score to beat this uh, season so far that went to Malcolm Gladwell so where do we start well we need to think about two things two cornerstones of your working life your appreciation of space like a particularly gifted central midfielder in football and your love of culture and I'm sorry does this not sound exactly like former Ireland central midfielder and Arsenal cult hero Liam Brady he of the cultured left <laughs> left boot and 
peerless appreciation of space. I think we might just be onto something here. Your appreciation for the beautiful public swimming pool in Tullamore is both gorgeous and points friendly. Your love of hockey and tennis, likewise. Points have to be deducted, however, for not putting consecutive victories back to back in the Lansdowne Lawn Tennis Frostbite <laughs> Tournament. You bestrode the competition like a colossus back in 95, but did you take your eye off the ball as you sought to retain your title? Did Tyndall get swept up in the adulation? We may never know. All in all, uh, I have to say it's been a magnificent effort. Not quite good enough to take top spot off Malcolm Gladwell, but good enough nevertheless for 77 points. Yvonne Farrell, this has been your sporting life. <laughs> Will you take that, Yvonne? <laughs> That's fantastic. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I get on to Anne immediately. <laughs> get straight on to Anne. She earned you a couple of points there for sure. Listen, brilliant stuff. Round of applause, please, for Yvonne Farrell. Excellent. <laughs> Ronan O'Snudig and Ton Talum on Second Captain Saturday. Another testing song title for me this week. It's Irish. Somebody it's, doing this on purpose. It's Irish. Ton Talum. It's not that. It's not that difficult. I know. Come on. But 
it's just a fair bit of, it's just a fair bit of Irish <laughs> fair few words back to back <laughs> like five we're talking and about and five whole listeners. words here <laughs> Listen, I was put in my place last week by Dearney Grief over my poetry bashing and put back in my box this week when Avon Farrell very politely took apart my somewhat simplistic take mm. on the work being done at the ESP <laughs> buildings. Uh, look, if these, if the, you know, if taking these punches from incredibly talented people on a weekly basis, if that is what is required to keep us entertained on a Saturday afternoon, I'm happy to roll with it, Murph. And well done to you, by the way. You kept your head, didn't overdo the points, somewhat restore the credibility of your scoring well, system, whatever credibility is left after a recent debate. Well, thank you, Owen. Uh, oftentimes, you know, you just get one shot with credibility. Once you lose your credibility, that's it. The game is over. So if I can rebuild it in any way that I can for you and indeed for the, the listening audience, then that's the work that I will set myself to. <laughs> Absolutely love that chat with Yvonne. What a great insight into a really great mind. And if you're listening, Anne Tindall, we all know who carried that doubles team at the Frostbite 295. <laughs> Yvonne Farrell double-handed backhand was feared the length and breadth of Lansdowne Lawn Tennis Club <laughs> by the sounds of things. That conversation with Yvonne, Murph, is not the first time that the worlds of sport and architecture have come together. You're aware of the Dutch concept of total football yes, to revolutionise the game in the 1970s? Okay, this is the idea that a football team should be a totally flexible thing in which any player is free to move around the field knowing that his position will be filled by a teammate, thereby retaining the team's overall structure. But did you know that long before Dutch total football came Dutch total architecture? Go on. According to You did not know this, I'm sure. According no, to David no. Winner's book, Brilliant Orange, in the first decades of the 20th century, the wildly expressionistic exponents of the Amsterdam School of Architecture came up with the idea of the city as a total work of art. The theory went that every separate element of the city, from the carpets, cutlery and furniture in people's homes, through to bridges, street lamps and even entire buildings, should be seen as part of one unified concept. Now, unfortunately, some of the most stylish buildings were better at looking good than keeping out the rainwater apparently as David Winner says an early example of leaky Dutch defences <laughs> <laughs> and you know the goalkeeper still was still the goalkeeper even in total football you know it's not like they're swapping jerseys every three minutes so I should else have said outfield goals. players alright Murph yeah so I don't know what the goalkeeper is in the analogy I'm, I'm going to say the bathroom at the end of the day a bathroom still has to be a bathroom it still has to perform the duties of a bathroom totally unconnected to the rest yeah, of the like house at, at the end of the day in, you know yeah. we're all for experimentation here but once <laughs> if I close the door in a bathroom mode I want to know that everything in there is in top working order <laughs> enough of your fancy stuff Dutch architects just, just give you a toilet just make sure everything here is in tip top shape that's it for this week. We'll see you again next Saturday. But why wait another week to hear us again when you can head over to secondcaptains.com for daily independent member-led podcasts, including the Players' Chair with Richie Sadler and international series like Where Is George Gibney? Thanks to Killian Down on Research, Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing. Thank you to Jan in studio. And thank you, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Take care.